Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. I'm Indre Viscontis. Welcome to another episode of Inquiring Minds. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Twenty twenty has been a notoriously bad year for a lot of us. There have been so many deaths related to the pandemic. People have lost their jobs. There's been economic disruption that we're going to feel for years to come. So I thought it might be fitting to end the year with a discussion of how everything might end. And who better to contemplate the end of the universe than Katie Mack, an astrophysicist who has written the book on the topic. A lot of you probably know her from Twitter at AstroKatie. And you might know her from a previous episode of Inquiring Minds, where we talked to her about sexual harassment in science. She's currently an assistant professor of physics at North Carolina State University. And her book, The End of Everything, was recently listed in the New York Times as a notable book of 2020. Katie Mack, welcome back to Inquiring Minds. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So one of the first things I learned in your book is that I've been referring to you incorrectly all these years. You uh, are not an astrophysicist, much to my surprise. Well, I I am an astrophysicist. There are a lot of overlapping, uh, there are overlapping categories. So I am an astrophysicist, but uh, I'm also a physicist. I'm also a cosmologist. Yeah. These are. (laughs) Yeah. So tell me, like, what's the difference between a cosmologist and an astrophysicist? Um, so a cosmologist is somebody who studies the cosmos as a whole, the evolution of the universe or the structure of the universe or the physics that governs the universe, you know, the the basic laws of, of physics in the cosmos. So cosmology is a blanket term that that really covers those the big questions, you know. Um, and you can be a physicist and a cosmologist, you can be an astrophysicist and a cosmologist. There are lots of ways to approach that uh, that topic. And so, you know, an astrophysicist who studies really distant galaxies might be a cosmologist because the galaxies they're studying are so far away that they're in an earlier time in the cosmos because the light has taken so long to get to us that we're seeing them when the cosmos was younger. And so that's that's a way of studying the evolution of the universe. But you can also be a physicist who studies how black holes work and be a cosmologist because the the questions in that topic are really important to the workings of the cosmos as a whole. 
So I don't feel so bad now because sometimes people call me a neurologist, which I'm not because I don't have an MD degree. <laughs> I'm a neuroscientist. Right, yeah. So in this case, it's more a question of rather than degree or what you were your you're studying was it's sort of like what is your scope of things that you're interested in? Yeah, yeah, and and sort of what kinds of questions are you trying to answer? And we have a lot of different tools for answering those questions um, in a, in a few different sort of subject areas. So it is there there are there's a big overlapping Venn diagram of all these different subtopics in, you know, astro astronomy and physics in general. So the next thing that I learned is that you and I probably share a poem, a favorite poem <laughs> um, that I hadn't known before. And, and I hadn't thought of this poem in so long. So you start your book with what is probably one of my favorite poems of all time, I have to admit. Um, so <laughs> let me just uh, read it for our audience. Sure. Some say the world will end in fire, some say in ice. From what I've tasted of desire, I hold with those who favor fire. But if I had to perish twice, I think I know enough of hate to say that for destruction, ice is also great and would suffice. <laughs> That's Robert Frost. <laughs> yep. So tell me a little bit about this notion of uh, ending in fire versus ending in ice. Is that, is that a, do we know the answer to this question? Well, we, we know the answer for the world. So that, that poem is specifically asking about the world, you know, how the world will end. And we do know how the world will end. At least we have a, a very good idea. And in that case, it's it's looking more like fire than like ice. Um, so, you know, we know that the sun has a finite lifespan. And at some point, the sun will run out of fuel and it will not be burning in the same way. It's going to go through a series of stages of different kinds of burning and, and different kinds of, you know, glowing, I guess you could say. And in a, it, within only about a billion years, it'll be so bright uh, and it'll swell a little bit that it that it'll boil off the oceans of the earth. And then over time, it just gets brighter and brighter and bigger and bigger. And that uh, will, will do a great deal of damage to our little planet. And we'll probably end up sort of engulfed by the sun one day, one way or another. So you could definitely say that our world will end in fire, and that seems like a reasonably uh, a reasonable certainty, at least as much as we can we can get in anything in astronomy. There's there's some chance that the that in the process of all that change, the Earth will kind of leave its orbit and and go out cold, but it'll burn up first, you know, and <laughs> burn off the oceans of the Earth. That part's pretty certain. So. So I think you can say fire for that. But for the universe, it's a it's a very different set of possibilities. Yeah, which is actually what your your book is about. And it was it was interesting for me to see right away the sort of distinction between our own little world and the universe. And uh, and I, I just want to point out though that it is 2020 and it would be fully on brand for this to happen, uh, you know, before the year is out, since it seems to be a <laughs> remarkably bad year. But, you know, that's one of the reasons why we decided to interview you at the end of our 2020 year. Um, and, and I say that in part because it's fun to talk about the end of the world when you've had a really bad year as a bit of catharsis, but also because your book is so joyful. It's like it, I almost <laughs> hear you giggling the entire time. And I just want to ask you, like, in the face of such an existential crisis, like knowing that nothing is going to last, that it's going to be this ending, like, how do you maintain your optimism? Um, you know, it's an interesting question. A lot of people ask if I find this topic really depressing, you know, the end of the universe. 
And I, I don't find it depressing. I do find it confronting. You know, I do find the idea of, you know, the the destruction of the cosmos, you know, sort of a, a harrowing thought. It is far away. Almost certainly it's going to be so far in the future that there's no way that it can impact my life at all. But there's something, you know, psychological, I don't know, I guess, about thinking about the far future and the idea that, um, you know, at some point, all of these things that we love, you know, the, the cosmos and our planet and everything will be gone. That's something that we as as people do struggle with. So so there is that kind of mixed, that mixed emotion, but but mostly... You know, I study this stuff and I'm just I'm just fascinated by the physics of it. I'm fascinated by the beauty of the cosmos and by just being able to think these big thoughts and hold these these notions of space and time in my mind. I, I find that really enriching and, and awesome. And I, I love thinking about it. and I love talking about it. Well, I mean, that that really comes through in your book. It's it's uh, such a such a joy to read, even though it's about such a dark topic in a sense. But, you know, so I want to talk a little bit about the certainty of it all, because it seems like we you seem pretty certain about the, the destruction of the world, as you've just described. And you seem pretty certain that the cosmos will end, um, that we're not going to sit unchanged forever. And you've even narrowed it down to five possibilities. And so I just wanted to first sort of talk about the process of, of how how you get rid of the uncertainty even though there's still some question as to exactly how it's going to end, how do we know that it is going to end? Right. Well, I mean, what we know is that the universe had a beginning. You know, we know that there was a process that it went through in the very early times where it changed from being this extremely hot, dense uh, thing with where all of space was was full of hot plasma and then it cooled and expanded and and it's been cooling and expanding since then. And so we can see the evolution of the cosmos from through different stages. And we can see that, you know, it is still changing. The the cosmos is expanding and the rate at which stars are being formed is slowing down. And, and we can see this evolution that is going through. And so when you see that, when you see that it was different at the very beginning and it's going through these changes, you know that it, it's not just going to stay as it is. Right, it's 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 gonna it's moving towards some future state, and if you just kind of follow through the the what we know of the laws of physics and extrapolate from what we see happening now, you inevitably come to something where everything that we know of in the cosmos now is is destroyed, and there's there's kind of no getting around that. There's there's no mechanism for keeping everything nice and stable and hospitable forever. Like that's just that's just not a thing that exists in our understanding of physics. But so can it can you imagine a, a notion where it's more cyclical, where I think of it more like a sine wave, uh, and you know, maybe we won't exist, but something will exist? Or is yeah, there and yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I mean that and that's one of the that's one of the options I talk about in the book, the possibility that there could be uh, you know, a a sort of cyclical universe, there could have been something before the beginning of our universe, there could be something after the the destruction of our universe. But that's, I don't consider that to be our universe anymore, you know, um, our everything in our cosmos will be destroyed. I think that's something that we can say with with a reasonable amount of certainty. And then whatever else happens, whatever comes out of that at the end, if anything comes out of that at the end, that's that's kind of a different question. That's a question of 
the continuation of of some kind of existence, but not for us, you know? Okay, so one more kind of clarification question, which is that, you know, physicists also talk about this idea that we have multiverses, that there are multiple universes going on at the same time. So is that something that you think about when you think about the destruction? Like, could there be, you know, different endings to these different multiverses? Yeah, absolutely. There could be, you know, when we talk about multiverses in in cosmology, we're we're really just talking about parts of some larger space that are so disconnected from us one way or another that that they're separate universes that that we can't interact with them, that they're they're not affecting us directly. And that's that's not a particularly unreasonable notion, you know, there there are lots of ways in which in which the universe could be much larger than we perceive. Um, in which there could be these disconnected spaces that have their own evolution, their own laws of physics even. So there are lots of possibilities for that. And I talk about a little bit of that in in the book as well. Um, And each of those different spaces could have its own evolution. Uh, You know, you could have, we could have branched out of some much larger space uh, and there could be other universes that branched out of that larger space that are existing sort of in parallel to us. But, you know, it's tricky because for the most part, almost by by definition, we can't know about these other spaces because they are disconnected from us. And there are there are only a few ways in which other universes might impact ours. In some cases, literally, there, there are some possibilities for, you know, adjacent universes to kind of crash into each other. But uh, for the most part, there there's something that we could only sort of uh, infer the possible existence of if we had a a notion of the the larger structure of the cosmos that included that possibility. So, you know, it, it's very possible stuff is out there, uh, but it's not so easy to, to learn about it directly. Okay, awesome. All right, so we've set the stage. We've got five possibilities that you've narrowed it down to. <laughs> so since, you know, a lot of people like to do lists in December, I thought this was an appropriate list for 2020. Sure. <laughs> Five endings to the universe. So let's start with number one, the big crunch. Uh, What's going on there? So the big crunch is is an idea that's been around for a really long time. And it was the scenario that was considered most likely sort of back in the 60s. The idea behind the big crunch is that right now we know that the universe is expanding. We see that distant galaxies are getting farther away from us, farther away from each other. There's more and more empty space. And that's been known since sort of the 1920s. And sort of as soon as that was known, there was this question, is this expansion going to keep going forever? Or will the expansion of the universe at some point stop and reverse? You know, will will all those galaxies that are moving away from us now start coming back? And uh, will we go back to that state of, you know, a hot, dense universe that we had at the beginning of our of our cosmos? So the Big Bang. The Big Bang, yeah. So the big crunch is the idea that the expansion of the universe would stop and reverse and everything would come crashing back together and, and we would end as we started as this you know incredible inferno. That, and that notion, uh, for, for a while it seemed to fit the available data, but now we know that it's, it's probably not going to happen because it, there is no evidence that the universe is slowing in its expansion. It, it, we know it was slowing in its expansion for for a long time, but now we know it's not. And in fact, we see something weird, which is that the universe seems to be speeding up in its expansion. And that that leads us to the possibility we think is most likely now uh, that the universe will continue expanding forever. 
And so what's the catchy title for that ending? So that's called the heat death. Okay. Um, and this is this is a title that that confuses a lot of people. It's also sometimes called the big freeze. Mm. Um, well, that seems a little opposite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I see. The so death he, of heat. Heat death. Well, okay. sort of. I mean, heat in this case, uh, it's sort of a, a weird um, jargony term. So heat in this case is is referencing specifically disordered energy. So in physics, heat is is just disordered energy, disordered radiation. And the idea behind the heat death is that at some point, everything decays away and all that's left is just this sort of waste heat from, you know, the universe breaking down, just like you might have, you'd have waste heat if you have an engine that's running inefficiently in it or an engine that's running at all, there's always going to be some inefficiency. There's like heat, uh, you know, in the friction of the gears and that loses some of the energy from the system and, and breaks it down eventually Similarly with the universe, as the universe sort of carries on, there's always going to be some inefficiency, some, you know, chaos coming into things, some disorder that's growing all the time. Things are decaying, things are breaking down. And a heat death is what happens if that continues forever and you end up in a state where there's nothing left but that waste heat, that, that disordered energy. The reason we think that this is what's going to happen to our universe is that we see that the expansion of the universe is speeding up. Uh, things are getting farther apart. Everything is, you know, all the empty space is getting bigger. And so that's uh, kind of, that's moving everything away from everything else in such a way that there are going to be fewer stars born in the future. The stars that are, that do exist are going to burn out and, you know, radiate away their energy um, and then matter is going to decay and even black holes evaporate uh, if you leave them alone long enough. Um, and so eventually everything's going to be just this waste heat from the, the the decay and destruction of everything in the cosmos. And so you'll end up with a universe that's just sort of cold and dark and empty and useless. And that's that's the heat death. And does that sort of require us to be right about what we think dark matter and dark energy are today? Because, you know, in, in my sort of very cursory understanding is that we don't really, there's a lot we don't know. And so I wondered if you could talk about like, how do you reconcile the unknowns in these ideas? Well, it, so the heat death does depend on dark energy being something that uh, sort of uh, something that we we understand. So dark energy is a term that that we use for whatever's making the universe expand faster. So I mentioned that the universe's expansion is speeding up and this is really weird. It's really weird because we th we used to think that like, okay, there was the big bang that set off the expansion. And since then the expansion should have been slowing down just because there's gravity of stuff in the universe and all that gravity should be kind of putting on the brakes on the expansion. It kind of pulls back, right? And so even if the universe is fated to expand forever, it should always be slowing just from the gravity of all the stuff in the universe. And that was happening for billions of years, but at some point about uh, about a billion years ago, that changed and uh, the uh, the expansion started speeding up. And that doesn't really fit with our usual um, understanding of how physics is supposed to work or how the things in the universe are supposed to work. And so whatever's making that expansion speed up, we call that dark energy. And there are a few possibilities for what dark energy could be. We don't know what it is. But um, our sort of default assumption is that it's something called a cosmological constant, 
which is just a property of space that space has a kind of stretchiness built into it inherently. And so when it when it gets larger and larger, that stretchiness starts to take over from the gravity and, and makes the universe expand faster and faster and faster. And so, sorry, I think I said earlier that it was a billion years ago that the expansion started speeding up. It was more like five billion years ago. Sorry about that. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> numbers. <laughs> it, was, it was a while ago, a few, a few billion years ago. Okay. Anyway, so the... If if we do have a cosmological constant, then that leads to this expansion forever and the universe sort of fading away. But but the dark energy could be something else. Um, it could be something weirder. It could be something that changes over time such that it reverses the expansion, leads us back to a big crunch. Or it could be something that causes a sort of more extreme expansion and leads us to the next scenario that I think you're going to ask me about, which is called the big rip. Yep, number three. Let's get to number three on our list. Essentially, is that is that that dark energy rips the universe apart? Yes, but then yeah. there's so, still pieces, right? Like, <laughs> well, not really. Okay. So, so the idea behind the big rip is that if dark energy is so powerful that it doesn't just move galaxies away from each other, but starts to build up within galaxies, within solar systems and planets, and and people and everything, like. It could start to actually pull apart, you know, structures, pull apart things that are already held together by gravity, which is something that a cosmological constant doesn't do. So if that's what dark energy is, if this this weird stuff, we call it phantom dark energy, that just, it just gets more powerful over time, then eventually it will tear apart all of the structure in the universe. And even, you know, if you leave it, if it goes long enough, will sort of tear apart space itself because it gets to a point where... The expansion is is getting so strong that that any two points, no matter how close they were together, at that point get pulled away to infinity, and, and so that's that's a a total destruction. That's why it's called the Big Rip. Hmm. It's like infinity of everything. Like it's almost mm-hmm. so, it's so hard to wrap your head around the idea of like yeah. an infinite number of infinite distances between <laughs> points. Yeah, and and it's one of these things, you know the. It's something that that comes out of the mathematics of thinking about different kinds of dark energy and their impact on structure. There are a lot of kind of theoretical issues that you have to work around with with these with these notions and and a lot of physicists, if you ask them about phantom dark energy and the big rip, they'll say, you know, we we really think that that couldn't happen. That there are there are certain fundamental principles that seems to violate. But, you know, it's one of these things where it, it comes out of the equations, it fits the data so far. I mean, we, we don't think it's likely to happen, but we can't rule it out based on the data yet. So, you know, it's something we kind of work with as this is an interesting possibility. Let's explore what it would tell us if it could happen. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. 
The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. So I wanted to actually just, before we get to the last two, pause for a minute and and ask you about this process. Like, you know, sometimes I think it's just really hard, for me at least, to wrap my head around these ideas. It seems to be something that you get a lot of joy out of and that it comes, you know, uh, more easily to you. But um, but I wondered if you could talk a little bit about these ideas that are are very difficult for us to model in our own brains. And so instead, we have to rely on um, equations and sort of how that that works. Yeah, so I mean, I wouldn't say it comes easily to me. I I would say I'm I'm fascinated enough by these topics that I am motivated to work really hard to try to understand them. But you know, it's like any like any science, like any academic discipline, like any job. It, it is hard work to to understand it, and it is, you know, it, it's not something where you just wake up and you understand the universe. <laughs> you know, there's uh, there's a lot more to it. But yeah, we we build mathematical models to represent the cosmos. So, so the way that this this whole field works is that we want to understand some process. Like, let's say we want to understand how gravity works. You know, then we we look at how gravity affects things in a lot of different situations, and we take data. Um, you know, how much does the gravitational pull change if something gets twice as far away? That that kind of data, and then we construct a mathematical description that accounts for that, that says, okay, based on the data, it looks like if you move something twice as far away, the gravitational pull goes down by, you know, it's now a quarter of what it was. And, and so we, we, we put that all together into mathematical descriptions, and then we take more data and see how well that works out. You know, does that, does that work in all situations? And for this example with gravity, you know, we can write down some equations. We get this Newtonian idea of gravity of you know how how what 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 describes a ball rolling down a hill or or a moon orbiting the planet. Then we test it in other situations. Then we look at things like well, how does what does this say that the orbit of Mercury around the sun should look like? And we take that data, and it turns out that it doesn't fit that data very well. There's there's some discrepancy, and then and then we need to bring in a more powerful theory, a, a more a more complete model like general relativity, which is Einstein's idea of gravity, that accounts for the fact that, you know, there's there's this subtlety to gravity where it's really more like a bending of space. And that's how things get affected by, um, you know, by masses and, and moving through space. And, and so now we have a different uh, mathematical description of gravity, and we can test that against other situations. And so now we're using all sorts of interesting observations of you know how things work around black holes and, and stuff like that to try to find to f- try and find where where maybe Einstein's theory of gravity could break down. So it's always it's always about finding some model and testing it against the data, and then seeing you know where is the range of validity of this model? Is there some other model that works in more extreme situations? 
What does that tell us about our current understanding of this? And so, you know, we're not always, we're not necessarily trying to find ultimate truth so much as we are trying to find descriptions, mathematical descriptions of the world or the universe that work better than the previous one, that work in more situations that that are able to let us predict more things. And so it's, it's really about finding mathematical descriptions that are useful and then finding how they're useful or where they're useful and, and what, what, what we can use them for and then refining those as, as needed to, to keep it useful. So an example of additional data that then um, sort of makes you rethink models is the discovery of Higgs boson, uh, the Higgs boson. Um, and also I think that this, so this is number four, the fourth way that our universe might end. Um, I think this is probably the one that that would be most likely in 2020. So like if 2020 <laughs> yes. uh, were to continue, uh, this would be uh, it. So, so let's right. hear about vacuum decay. Sure, sure. Yeah. So vacuum decay, it, it is connected to the idea of the Higgs boson. So the Higgs boson is this particle that was discovered with the Large Hadron Collider, this, this giant experiment in Europe um, that smashes protons together and sees what comes out at the end. And one thing they discovered in, in 2012 was, was the Higgs boson. Was, it was this particle that's sort of associated with, associated with a process that, by which particles in the very early universe became what they are and, and attained mass. And so there's this whole, this whole complicated thing about how in the very, very early universe, when it was extremely hot and dense in the first few you know, microseconds, there was a different mix of particles, a different set of laws of physics than there are now. And something changed in that time. This thing that changed is called the Higgs mechanism. So basically there's this energy field throughout all of space that we call the Higgs field. And based on what that energy field is doing, kind of the value of the energy in that field, the laws of physics can be different. And so we know that the Higgs field had a different value in the very, very early universe. And then this transition occurred and set up the laws of physics we have now. And we, we like that, that that happened because it allowed for, you know, things like uh, electromagnetic forces holding, you know, electrons in atoms, holding molecules together. It means that we can interact with the world. We can have particles and atoms and, and molecules and, and we can exist as physical beings because, um, because this process occurred and it changed how the particles interacted, gave particles mass. It allowed us to be solid humans, right? Like, so that's good. But there's some possibility that the Higgs field could change again. And when the Higgs boson, which is a particle associated with that field, was discovered and measured, it gave us a clue suggesting that, that this possibility that the Higgs field could change again really is a possibility. It's really something that could happen. And the way that would happen is there would be a kind of quantum event, a quantum tunneling event, which is sort of a, a process by which something where like a particle can suddenly appear on the other side of the room, even though you didn't give it any kick to go there. There's this weird things that can happen with subatomic particles where they can move around in strange ways. They can appear in strange ways. They can do weird things. And an event like that uh, could happen with the Higgs field, where at some point in, in the cosmos, anywhere in the, in, the, in the universe, the Higgs field could undergo a change at that point through this random quantum event that we wouldn't be able to predict. We wouldn't know it happened. It could just happen at any time as a random event. And if that happened at some point in the universe, that would kick off a, a sort of chain reaction 
that would create a bubble of a different kind of space where the Higgs field is different and the laws of physics are different. And that bubble would expand through the universe at about the speed of light and just rewrite physics as it goes and thus destroy everything because, um, you know, we would not, we would not respond well to our physics being rewritten. And, uh, the intriguing thing about this process, which is called vacuum decay, is the unpredictability. Now, I don't want people to, to stay up all night worrying about this. And I get emails from people saying that they're staying up all night worrying about this. So just to head that off, um, we think it's very unlikely. We don't know for sure if this instability even exists. And if it does, we, can, we can't say when or where it will happen. We can say that it's extraordinarily unlikely to happen anytime in the next you know, trillion and trillion, 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 trillion years. Um, we can make an estimate of how long it'll it'll likely take, but it is intriguing that you know it is something that could technically happen at any time. It's just extraordinarily unlikely, and that kind of helps me understand why it was called the God particle. <laughs> I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know if this is the reason, but this like the kind of the the way in which one little thing can have such a massive impact. You know? Yeah, and this is what's this is what's so cool about it as a physicist. This is why I I like this topic so much is that. You know, usually when you're talking about cosmology, you're talking about things that happen over billions and billions of years on these huge scales. And, you know, it's not very dynamic, right? Um, it's very slow evolution. But when you talk about something like the Higgs boson and, and the Higgs field and this vacuum decay process, you have something that could happen on a subatomic level, you know, just in one spot, this tiny, tiny thing that normally you never notice, and it can destroy the whole universe. <laughs> you know, like that's... That's just such an amazing uh, connection between the physics of the very, very small and the very, very large. And that's that's the kind of area of research I love to work in, the, that those connections between the, the particle physics and cosmology, the smallest scales and the largest scales. It's a little bit like a little spiky protein virus completely upending the global economy. Yeah. <laughs> And, yeah, you know, exactly. destroying hundreds and thousands of lives. Okay. All right. So um, the last one which sounds more optimistic, I should say, than any of the previous ones, at least in its title, because it doesn't quite have uh, a death in its title, um, Bounce. <laughs> so yeah. what's going on there? So so the bounce idea, in the book, I, I use that, um, that chapter to talk about a few different possibilities that have been suggested for cyclic cosmologies or, or universes that undergo some kind of transition from a, a beginning to an ending to a new beginning. And uh, there are a few ways that could happen. There are some scenarios where our universe would contract a little bit and then undergo this like burst of, of radiation and, and a new Big Bang and then expand again. There are some where the universe would evolve all the way to a heat death and then a new universe would pop out at the end of that. There are some weirder ones where our Big Bang was a transition between an, a, a past anti-universe and our present universe. Like there, there are a few different possibilities there. So I talk about those in the, in the bounce chapter. And I think people do find that uh, somehow reassuring the idea that, you know, maybe our ending will not be the complete ending for everything. There could be, there could be more, something new that comes out of our ashes, you know, some kind of like rebirth. And, and uh, I find, I find that really interesting that, that, that is so reassuring to people. I don't personally find that is that it all that reassuring because it's like, well, we're still gonna die. <laughs> but um, but it is something that that brings the hope that you know maybe something could survive 
the destruction of our universe. And maybe there could be some kind of cosmic legacy for our cosmos. You also describe the, the and, and I kind of, I see now what, what you mean about this ca- kind of cathartic feeling about thinking about these forces that are so much bigger than anything, you know, in our immediate world, especially when our world has become so small through, uh, you know, a pandemic and isolation. And, and so I, I wanted to just kind of end on a, on a more sort of positive, happier note, but one that is informed uh, after going through this discussion and thinking about these things in a way that you do and sort of talk to you a little bit about, you know, how, how thinking about this, how wondering about this, what that means for, you know, your values and, you know, how you deal with adverse situations like the pandemic and sort of what the point of all of this is. Um, I mean, I, I do think that there that it I do find it inspiring thinking about these big questions. You know, even when we're all sort of isolated in our own little spaces, we can we can ponder these incredible these incredible things about the the cosmos and the the birth of the cosmos and the death of the cosmos. I find that I find that to be very freeing somehow to to think about those topics and and the idea that that our cosmos will come to an end, the idea that the universe will die, there's also something something freeing about that as well. And and this is something that you know in the book I I sort of wrestle with it a bit. In the book, there's a there's an epilogue at the end where I've I've gone around and I've talked to other physicists about this question and you know ask them how do you feel about the end of the universe? <laughs> you know what is it what what is what is it to you? Um, how does it affect you? And, uh, you know, I, I tried to kind of figure out how I feel about the end of the universe. And I think that, that there is something about it that there's, there's a kind of luxury in it in thinking about these big questions and being able to just look beyond your immediate future and, and think about the fate of the entire cosmos. I think that's, I don't know, that it kind of makes you feel, it makes you feel smaller and, and less significant, but also connected to something much larger and, that can be really great. That can be a really inspiring thing. And I don't know, also it just, it, it kind of, it's like, yeah, you know, we're going to die. We're not going to be able to take anything with us. Um, but the whole universe is going to die. And so we need to find some way to find meaning now, you know, to, to make, make this time that we have that is so precious, uh, meaningful and important. And, and, and we need to find ways to, not rely on somebody coming along at the end and saying, well, this is what it was all about. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really, we have to, we have to work from within the universe where we have this finite time and find our own meaning and beauty in it. And I think that for me, it, it also helps me feel grateful for having the opportunity to experience this universe, this moment, you know, and have the you know, have the brain to to be able to contemplate it, you know, to be able to, you know, yeah, to have that existence that I can think about and and uh, and be grateful for. Yeah, exactly. Well, here's to hoping each of those or any of those scenarios are a long way off. And uh, <laughs> just to use basic yep. Newtonian physics, since 2020 was kind of a shit show, 2021 should be better, <laughs> right? <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. 
Well, Katie Mack, thank you so much uh, for being on Inquiring Minds. And I just want to remind our listeners that Katie's excellent book, The End of Everything, Astrophysically Speaking, is available at booksellers everywhere. And um, it's, it's funny, it's deep, and ultimately, it's uplifting. So thank you, Katie. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was great. So that's it for another episode. Hopefully not for our universe just yet. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Cheng, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Ewald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis, and I'll see you next week. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.